in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 for this reading of God's Word. <clears throat> We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and that means we are looking at Galatians chapter 3 beginning in verse 10, and we are going to look at verses 10 through 14. Again, Galatians chapter 3 beginning in verse 10. This is the Word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seats, brothers and sisters. One of the things that it, it doesn't take long to notice is how in our day and age, people routinely adorn themselves with crosses. You see them on t-shirts, you see them worn as necklaces, some people go so far as to even have them tattooed on their bodies. So that in a lot of ways, today in our world, the cross is something of a fashion icon. Now, brief caveat... I'm not necessarily suggesting that people should not do that. Don't misunderstand me. That's not the point. I'm simply making an observation. And the observation is this, that regardless of someone's convictions about the Christian religion, the fact of the matter is that crosses have become part of our wardrobe. In today's world, they are an accessory. They are actually a reflection of our style. What is significant, though, is how different that idea is from how crosses are viewed in Scripture or even in the ancient world. You see, in Scripture, the cross was nothing less than an instrument of cruel death, one that was designed to inflict unimaginable torture upon someone. At the same time, it was used as a remarkably effective deterrent. In other words, the Romans used the cross not just to execute people, but to brutally and violently execute people. And on top of that, they would make sure that crucifixion took place in the public sphere. And they would do so with the criminal's charges being spelled out above his head. That way, whenever you would walk down the street and you would see someone being crucified, you would know, unless I want to see that same fate myself, I need to make sure that I walk on the straight and narrow. So if you think about it in terms of fashion, the cross would be equivalent, at least in our day and age, of wearing the symbol of an electric chair around your neck. It would be like having a firing squad or a lethal injection necklace. Probably not a huge market for that. The point is the cross was ugly. It provoked fear 
and disgust. So horrific was the cross that as a rule in polite society, you simply did not discuss crucifixion. And that's because, and we'll see this from our passage this morning, the cross, beloved, was evidence of being cursed of God. Now, as we have been journeying through Galatians, brothers and sisters, we have been confronted with a singular reality, one that was massively important to the first Christians who received this letter, and one that is equally important to you and I as well. The Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul, has been sounding an alarm. There is this siren that is ringing, and it is very, very loud. What God is intending to do with the Galatians and with us is get our attention. And it has to do with how you and I can stand right in God's sight. Or or if you allow me to employ the metaphor, we have come to something of a fork in the road. The destination, you ask? Well, to use the language of verse 11, justification. Again, the idea is to be declared right in God's sight. That's the destination. But this fork in the road puts before us two paths. If we go the one direction, we will seek justification through our own efforts. But if we go the other direction, we will seek justification by faith in Christ. Let's be clear. For these original congregations, they were tempted to take the road of their own efforts. Think circumcision, observing feast days, obeying the law of Moses. To those in Galatia, this all sounded very attractive. And the thought process seemed to have went something like this. Well, if I would just do this, if I could just check that box, then I would be good with God. And I would just like to point out that this same cancer plagues us today. We might be tempted to think that our religious devotion puts us right with God. We, we might think that, that, that God is really pleased with me, that, I'm, that I have all of my sins forgiven because I've learned this much about the Bible or about theology. We might be tempted to rely upon our baptism or our feelings or our experiences or our our very rigorous spiritual disciplines. Fall back on these things. But here's the problem with taking that fork in the road. This idea of thinking that you can be right with God's sight by your own doing, it will only lead to despair and death or to use the language of our passage this morning, it will only bring curses. The question is why? Why does despair and death and curses await such a person? And the answer is this. The answer is the law is impotent. The law is impotent. It does not have the ability to make you and I right before God. The law cannot, I repeat, cannot do that. All the law can do is condemn you. That's what the law holds out to sinners like you and I. The law offers us only curses. And if you doubt me, I would 
have you turn your attention to the words of verse 10. They couldn't be clearer. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And that one sentence alone is worthy of our attention. We would do well to, to grab our trusty magnifying glass and zoom in so that we can see all that is going on in verse 10. To begin with, Scripture uh, tells us that, that it is redressing those who rely on works of the law. So that phrase, works of the law, what does it mean? What, what does it include? And specifically here, it would include all that the Judaizers were promoting. Again, things like you have to be circumcised, things like you need to keep these special Old Covenant feast days. They would say stuff like you need to abstain from these particular foods. To to put it in sort of our jargon today, you need to make Moses Lord of your life. More broadly, though, that phrase, works of the law, it really encompasses anything you do, thinking that by doing it, you will curry favor with God. Works of the law is what you do or what you don't do. It's what you contribute. It's what you put on your spiritual resume. And so the warning is, Do not rely on them. Don't trust in them. Perhaps you've busted up your leg before and you you had to get crutches. We, We all know how crutches work, right? You put all of your weight on the crutches and not your leg. That way your leg can heal. Well, the argument from Galatians 3 goes something like this. Don't use the law as a crutch. Don't put weight on your works. Don't lean on them. Don't think that by anything that you do, you can somehow make yourself right with God. Notice who this warning is directed to. Verse 10 begins, For all who rely on works of the law. All, Paul says. And in the context, all here is Jew and Gentile. We would say today, all peoples, man, woman, black, white, young, old, it doesn't matter. Beloved, you are in this verse if you are relying on you. The passage continues, warning us yet again that all who rely on works of the law are what? Under a curse. You have to see that this fork in the road is really a fork in the road and not simply a detour. If you are trusting in you, and by that again, your works, your deeds, your activities, if you think that you can bring your resume to God at all, and that by what you have plastered on your resume, that you will be right in God's sight, Scripture says you are dead wrong. And the reason that you are dead wrong is because all that the law brings is curses. All the law brings is the judgment of God. Unless you or I think that Paul is perhaps just sharing his opinion with us, he actually quotes from God's law itself. 
Verse 10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Well, that is from Deuteronomy 27, 26. So, so catch this. God's law itself warns. Unless you personally and perfectly and perpetually obey, unless you do that, then you will not find yourself on the receiving end of blessings, but actually on the receiving end of curses. Notice how inflexible the law is. The passage from Deuteronomy that Paul quotes says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and, just for good measure, do them. Not some things, but all things. Every jot and tittle must be obeyed. And not only must, must they be sort of abided, upon, abided in, but you must, end of verse 10, do them. Positively, you must perfectly obey at all times. James, the half-brother of our Lord, he, he sort of builds on this same argument. He cautions us. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one part has become guilty of all of it. You hear something of the same flavor of Deuteronomy's abide by all things written in the book of the law, don't you? But James, he sort of pushes the envelope. He elaborates a little bit. He's letting us know we do not have the luxury to just pick and choose. You don't get to decide what parts of the law that you like and then obey them, and then what parts of the law that, that you're sort of going to chuck and have nothing to do with. It, it doesn't work that way. You do not get to treat God's law like a buffet, sort of having seconds of what you want and passing over what isn't quite your appetite. When it comes to the law of God and your justification, the point is this. It will be all or it will be nothing. You might imagine for a moment a mirror standing in front of you. You grab a sharpie. And you write with a big, fat, black sharpie on that mirror the law of God. You, you inscribe on that mirror the Ten Commandments. Now, let's just say, hypothetically speaking, that you only broke one of those laws, and you only broke one of those laws one time, to which we would all give you a big, hearty round of applause and say, good for you. Now you have to pull out a hammer, though, and you need to smash on that mirror just that one law that you broke just that one time. Go ahead, pick up your hammer and smash that mirror, but make sure you just smash the mirror at that one commandment that you broke. You can't do it, can you? What you will have lying at your feet is a whole pile of glass. And that is because if you try with that hammer to smash just one of those laws, you will end up smashing the entire mirror. Likewise, James warns us to break one of God's laws is to break all of God's laws. So to be justified by the law, church, it will require you to personally and perfectly and perpetually obey every single jot and tittle of God's law. 
which leads us to our conclusion. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Not me, not you, not nobody. And the reason that no one is going to be justified by God this way is that we are sinners. And again, all that the law pronounces upon sinners like you and I is curses. Which means if you zoom out, the law is both powerful and impotent at the same time. We can say that because the law is mighty and powerful to convict us of our sin. That, church, is what the law is good for. That is where you see the law flex its huge muscles, right? The law is strong to condemn. The law calls balls and strikes. But this same powerful law is also at the same time impotent impotent to justify us. It's very good at pointing out our sin, at poking its bony finger at us. But the law can't make us righteous. The law is great at, the the law is great at calling balls and strikes, say, as an umpire would. But the law can't take the bat off of your shoulders and hit a home run for you. That's not what umpires do, and that's not what the law does. So where are we to turn then? If the law really is impotent, and it is, then what can we do? And the answer is, well, we can't do it. Enter faith. Enter verse 11 again. The apostle tells us it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, For the righteous shall live by faith. Once again, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, this time from Habakkuk 2.4. And Paul is demonstrating that the only way anyone can ever stand right in God's sight is not by works, but by faith. Faith, redeeming grace, is what characterizes the righteous. Not whether or not you've taken to yourself some sort of old covenant sign. Faith is what marks out the righteous, not their innate ability to keep the law. As our passage declares, faith is how the righteous live. Unless there be any confusion, I want you to see quite clearly in our passage that faith and works here are not friends. It's actually much worse than that. They are foes. And the reason they are foes is because they are different ways to stand right before God. To return to the fork in the road, one path is the path of works, and the other is the path of faith. And both lead to two entirely different directions. They both have entirely different destinations. One is heaven, and the other is hell. Law and faith are antithetical. They are polar opposites. And if you were to ask, well, why are they so antithetical to one another? The answer is this. One is about you and what you do, and one is about Christ and what Christ has done. 
You can, you can witness something of the antithesis in verses 11 and 12. Notice how law and faith are juxtaposed. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. There's no one justified by the law on the one side, for the righteous shall live by faith. Again, quoting, uh, uh, quoting Habakkuk 2.4. But, verse 12, the law is not of faith. Rather, and now he'll quote Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them shall live by them. Faith and law operate on two entirely different planes. They're allergic to one another. It's law or gospel. It's works or faith. It's the difference between the old covenant and the new. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. They are so different because the law barks, perform. But the other offers promise. The one threatens to you and I, do, do, do. But the other announces, it's been done, done, done. The law thunders, you can stand right in God's sight only as a reward for the things you do. But the gospel promises, you stand right in God's sight on account of what Christ has already done for you. We might be able to put it this way. The heart and soul of the legalist is this. I can be right in God's sight by my own doing. This was the attitude of the Judaizers, that, that group that was threatening these churches in Galatia. They were convinced that their deeds would make them good with God. The heart and soul of the legalist is, I can be right by my own doing. But the heart and soul of faith is that I can only be right in God's sight by Christ's doing. And so that with the eyes of faith, the Christian is convinced only Christ's deeds will ever make them good with God. This all, of course, raises the question, what is faith? Because the end of verse 11 again says, the righteous shall live by faith. And verse 12 says, the law is not of faith. And so we have to ask the question, what is faith? In short, church, the faith is you and I looking away from ourselves. Faith puts no confidence in itself. Faith doesn't look in the mirror and marvel at its good works or its achievements or its growth. What faith does is it abandons all hope in self. It refuses to look in the mirror. It refuses to be occupied with vain navel-gazing. But let's be clear as well, and I think we'd mentioned this last week, when the scriptures speak of faith, particularly here in Galatians 3, this is not faith in faith. It's not faith in some nebulous higher power. It's not faith in the fact that you really truly believe in yourself and that you can do better. It's not the point. It is not merely the presence of this so-called faith that somehow makes it virtuous or commendable. 
Faith is only biblical faith and justifying faith and saving faith and life-giving faith if it does two things at the same time. If it both looks away from self and looks to Christ. That is the faith of the righteous. It is a faith or reliance upon Christ as our Redeemer. <coughs> Excuse me. Now here's the question. We've seen how relying upon works of the law only brings a curse. That much seems simple enough. We've been called to receive Christ, to rely on Christ, to rest in Christ. The answer is why, or the question is why. Why abandon hope in self and trust in Jesus Christ? And the answer from our passage is this. Because Christ was, cru- was cursed for us. Verse, th- verse 13 announces the, the scandalous good news. We're told that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and this will now be the fourth Old Testament text cited by Paul in this little passage this morning. This one from Deuteronomy 21-23. Cursed is everyone who was hanged on a tree. Now the plain declaration, brothers and sisters, is that while upon that horrific cross, Christ was cursed. And he was cursed... Please don't miss this, because curses is what lawbreakers deserve. Remember verse 10, quoting from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So, those who do not abide by all things written in God's law, those who do not do God's law perfectly, they ought to be cursed. And that includes you and I. Every single lawbreaker, and that includes every single one of us, what we deserve for our sin is nothing less than divine condemnation. And make no mistake about it, that is what Christ experienced. It's what he received. It's what he was exposed to there on that cross. He was cursed of God. But of course, and this is altogether massive, we know that Christ himself was not a lawbreaker, right? He was not personally a sinner. The the scriptures are so clear on this point. Christ only ever obeyed God. His life was one of loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. So Christ was not, in and of himself, a sinner. But he did, middle of verse 13, become a curse for us. In those moments, he was reckoned as a sinner. He was treated as a sinner. As Christ was lifted up there on that dark afternoon between heaven and earth, God the Father unsheathed His righteous and just sword of judgment, and He plunged it deep into the soul of His beloved Son. Why? 
Because on the cross, Christ was counted as a sinner, and that is exactly what sinners deserve. And if you were I to pause and we were to ask, well, why? Why was Christ cursed for us? Well, then you and I would come face to face with the good news of the gospel. You see, what the scriptures tell us is that the Father subjected His Son to this wrath and that Christ willingly endured this wrath to what end? To redeem us. To redeem us. This is why, church, Christ endured the curse of the cross. He did so in the place of sinners that He might save sinners. To to put it into our sort of modern context, what Christ did was sit down in our electric chair. He offered his vein for the lethal injection. He actually placed his body in front of ours and shielded us as the firing squad took their aim. He did this, as our passage tells us, to redeem us. Now, of course, there's a a whole ton of stuff going on here just below the surface. What this all presupposes, of course, is the simple, and yet, we should be honest, uncomfortable fact that we are all sinners. We have all broke God's law, and therefore we are all, each and every one of us, ripe for judgment. Just as the blood of Abel cried out from the ground demanding justice, so does our sin. It provokes God's wrath and God's judgment and, yes, even God's damnation of us. And this is not because God is bad. Quite the contrary. When you and I think of hell and we think of damnation and we think of punishment and we think of curses, we generally are very quick to do PR for God. We don't like the way this sort of makes God sound or look. It even makes us a little uncomfortable. But what we should recognize is that the reality of hell and damnation and curses, it actually proves that God is not bad, but that God is altogether good. Perhaps that deserves some explanation. A good judge must convict criminals. That is his job. When someone stands before a judge and the evidence is in and it is time to render a verdict, if that person is in fact guilty of a crime, what do we expect of the judge? Rather, what do we demand of the judge? But to administer justice. And if that judge decides in the very last moment not to convict the criminal, to just sort of let him off, to sort of wink at the whole thing and and poo-poo it away, would we not rightly call foul? In fact, would the judge in those moments, would he not cease to be a good judge if, in fact, he tolerated evil? Imagine for a moment if the judge simply let the criminal off because the criminal said he was sorry. The criminal promised he would not do that again. The criminal said, I'm going to work harder tomorrow to make sure that I don't do that again. 
Consider this. What if the judge let him off and the judge's defense of his own dereliction went something like this? Well, I am a good and loving and kind and forgiving judge. Would there not be an outcry in the streets? Rightfully so. Demanding that that judge be disbarred. You see, we require judges to be good, and the measure of that goodness is found in faithfully upholding the law and administering justice. Likewise, because God is infinitely good, He will most certainly deal with sin. We can go even further. A good God must, and I repeat must, condemn sin. And if God does not condemn sin, God is no longer good. And if God is no longer good, then God is no longer God. The fact of the matter is, we all deserve the cross. And by the cross, what we ought to mean by that is the blood and the judgment, the pain the darkness, the unmitigated wrath of God being poured out upon you and I, the very curse of God, it should fall upon each and every one of our shoulders. It should crush us into oblivion. But the wonder of the gospel and the grace of God is that that curse fell not upon our shoulders, but upon the shoulders of Christ. And that, according to our passage, is how Christ redeemed us. Christ redeemed us, verse 13, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is to say, Christ took our place. He died our death. He paid the penalty that we owed. In a very real sense, Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now stay with me, because this gets to the heart, not just of the gospel, but really to the heart of Paul's point to the churches in Galatia. The only way to be redeemed is by faith in the Redeemer. Full stop. It is by faith. Faith in Christ, the Christ who was cursed for you. Meaning, here's the punchline, your circumcision won't do it. Your keeping of these silly feast days won't do it. You thinking that if you just start reading an extra, chapter, an extra chapter of the Bible a day, that you can somehow placate God, that won't do it. You not performing that one pesky sin will not magically fit you for heaven. Your baptism doesn't magically wash away your sins. Attending church doesn't cause you to be righteous. You can't do it. There's never enough that you can do. And ironically enough, the more you try, the deeper a hole you dig. Why? Because not only does a curse hang upon all who break God's law, but a curse hangs over all those who rely on works of the law. Remember, the law is impotent to save. But Christ, is powerful to save. So the whole thrust 
of Galatians 3 and all of Galatians really is don't trust in yourself. Trust in Christ. Really lean into, push into that promise that Christ is enough for you. That He really has done it all for you. This isn't true of just unbelievers, but, but even of Christians, and even those who have been Christians for decades and decades, we are prone to try and be our own saviors. We, we are prone to give lip service and a head nod to the fact that Christ died and that because of Him our sins are forgiven. Yeah, but. And then we got to go to work, man. you got to do your thing, whatever it is. And some of you actually try to keep God's law, and others of you invent your own sort of man-made law and think that by keeping it, you'll, you'll do the trick. You have to give up on trying to be your own Savior and instead rest in He who truly is the Savior. And when you do that, God makes wonderful promises. In fact, verse 14 concludes with two of those wonderful promises. The first is in verse 14, the beginning there, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. You, you might recall from a couple of weeks ago that, that Paul refers to it back in Galatians 3.8. He says in Galatians 3.8, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So, so what is the blessing of Abraham that comes to us? L listen up, this is so good. Just like Abraham, we too are justified by faith. That's the promise. God did not merely justify Abraham as sort of some one-off thing. No. God's justifying of Abraham, God's declaring Abraham just and right in his sight by faith alone, that same promise applies to you and I. So that again, what Galatians is really saying is, redeeming grace, give up on yourself. Just as Abraham was justified in Genesis 15 by faith, long before circumcision, long before he had a resume, long before Genesis 17, so too we are justified by faith apart from any works that you or I do. So cease, verse 10, relying on works of the law and instead embrace Christ by grace alone through faith alone. That church is how we stand right in God's sight. That's the first promise. The second is like it. We find it at the end of verse 14, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul, Paul begs us to ask the question, well, how do we receive the spirit? Is it through our works? Is it through our activities or through our achievements? Do we receive the spirit through our obedience or through our faithfulness? No, we receive the Spirit of God, He who seals us and indwells us, He who unites us to Christ and transforms us into the very image of Christ. We receive the promised Spirit, end of verse 14, through faith. 
Beloved, the Spirit is not a reward. He is a gift. The Spirit is not someone that you and I earn. The Spirit and all His blessings are given. Hear me well. The Spirit of God and all the new covenant blessings associated with Him. And some of those new covenant blessings mean election and justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification and resurrection and and heaven. We receive all of it, every single syllable, by grace alone, through faith alone. So back up just real quick. What are the two promises here? The one is justification. The other is the Spirit. And Paul's point is this. Both of those gifts are given to those who believe. That is how we lay hold of Christ. That is how the gavel drops and we hear the judge declare righteous. And that is how we are brought into the family of God and given the Spirit of God, the very down payment of our inheritance. It is all yours, Christian, by faith. So if you would see and hear anything this morning, see and hear this. Relying on what we do to be right with God or earn His blessings is a dead-end path. Instead, we are to rely on Christ, who He is, and what He has done for us. All that we seek, brothers and sisters, life and forgiveness and justification, it is all found by entrusting yourself to the one who was cursed to redeem you. So look nowhere else, especially the mirror. Instead, look to the cross. Look to the cursed cross. Look to the Christ who was cursed for you to redeem you. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your word promises great blessings to us. That your word promises to us Christ. And so we pray that that your Holy Spirit would see fit, even in these very moments, to stir, to engender faith in the heart of your people this day, that we might cling to Christ by faith, that we would tear up our resume, and that we would run to the cross afresh, and we would find you to be a God who gives of himself to those who don't deserve. We pray that that you would keep our eyes from fixing on ourselves. Keep us from thinking that, that we need to gather so many sort of notches in our spiritual belt. Instead, we pray, we pray that you would leave us abandoned to Christ and that we would find that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is enough, that Christ would truly satisfy our parched souls. We pray these things for, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.